This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I'm your ruggedly handsome host, Justin Kinney, and I'm excited to be here with you guys for another episode. Now, this week, we're going to kick things off by doing an update of some previous episodes that I've touched on, and then we're going to use that as a springboard into another episode of Peculiar Politics, where I discuss one of the more unusual oddities that existed out there in the world of international relations. Now, a couple months ago, I did an episode on North Korea. At the time, we were having all these news stories about President Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un meeting with President Moon of South Korea, and potentially some developments in the relationship there between North Korea and the rest of the world. As I'm sure you guys are aware, North Korea has had a fairly contentious relationship with uh, the West in particular, but really their neighbors in the, in the Far East and the rest of the world in general, especially when it comes to nuclear politics. But there were some developments a couple months ago when Donald Trump went to meet with Kim Jong-un and some of the meetings and multiple meetings between Kim Jong-un and the South Korean president, Moon. And so there's been some talk that there may be denuclearization in the future. And there are a couple, say, symbolic things that have taken place since then that I wanted to update on because we haven't really talked about North Korea in a while. Now, one of the things I did talk about maybe a month ago or so was that North Korea had released soldier remains from people who had died during the Korean War all those years ago. And they had returned a lot of those to, to the United States, which was kind of a very symbolic gesture of sorts that was... Again, it seems kind of small on the surface, but it was really meaningful to the family members and those who had loved ones that had died over there but had never received a body or any remains from that war. And so they have been left wondering all these years. And so that was some nice closure, but again, kind of a symbolic thing. But we actually have a new update that has taken place in North Korea just recently, and that is the pledge to start disarming the border between North and South Korea. Now, they've begun demilitarizing what's been called the scariest place on Earth. This is the Joint Security Area, or the JSA. Now, the JSA is the, the really probably infamous location kind of between the two Koreas, where North and South Korean soldiers essentially stand face-to-face, -face, you know, guns at the ready, guns at their side ready to, to fight. And so North and South Korea have just recently, in the last day or so, agreed to remove all weapons and all ammunition from this JSA. Now, this is, like I said, a very symbolic gesture, much like the returning of the remains. But the idea here is that it may lead to reduced tensions further between uh, Seoul and Pyongyang. Now, a little bit of backstory. Uh, the JSA is this truce area, sometimes called Panmunjom. And it's, it's almost like a little village that's right on the border. The military demarcation line runs right through it. Uh, it's an area kind of in that DMZ. And this is where we actually saw President Moon and Kim Jong-un meet uh, all those, you know, a couple months ago when each leader kind of symbolically crossed over that demarcation line. And they at the time vowed to turn this DMZ, which is, stands for Demilitarized Zone, 
into what they called at the time a peace zone. And so over the last couple of months, they have talked a couple other times and agreed to different to different things. As part of this agreement, they announced they're going to be removing all the mines that they have in this region as well. And they're withdrawing guard posts, they're withdrawing firearms, they're withdrawing ammunition. And this is uh, all part of the agreement that was really reached between Kim and Moon about a month ago. It was the most recent meeting that they had. It was their third face-to-face meeting of the year, and it's thought they may have had phone conversations as well. So they've talked several times. At the beginning of October is when they really started doing the demining operations. They're excavating. They've been there's a lot of like landmines, other explosives across this area, and they've uh, I think dug up about 14 landmines, but close to 200 other explosives. They actually also found the remains of two soldiers that were dug up, and so they're going to be running some some DNA to determine the identity of those uh, probably South Korean soldiers, but they're not 100% sure right now. But this disarmament of the JSA here is is a pretty big symbolic move because it's it's been a real uh, open sig- signal, a real open sign of the tensions that have taken place, where literally the soldiers are standing there almost face to face with the weapons you know at the ready. This has been one of the most overt symbols of this tension between the two countries. And for those of you who aren't super familiar with it, the Korean War never officially ended. Technically, the two countries are still at war. They've just been under a ceasefire you know, for, for decades now. But the war never truly ended. And so they are now in the process of, looks like, trying to, to end that and to disarm and to really ease a lot of these tensions, which is a pretty big deal. Now, the JSA actually was put into place, as I said, you know, years and years ago. It's actually one of the last relics that still exists from the Cold War era. And we've seen the tensions along this entire DMZ area uh, escalate multiple times over the years. In fact, just last year, there was a North Korean soldier who tried to defect and you know, run across the, the DMZ into the South Korea and got shot multiple times. Now, he did, I believe, make it and ultimately survived but but he was shot multiple times by his own fellow North Korean soldiers who were trying to stop him from escaping the country. And so we've seen these types of things happen every so often over the years. But the changes to the JSA is probably one of, one of the biggest new moves that's taken place in these, in these countries. Uh, it's actually a pretty dramatic turn of events when you think about where we were about this time last year, where the United States and North Korea were essentially threatening each other over n- nuclear war. And now we have, you know, multiple meetings between Kim and Moon. Uh, Kim and President Trump actually had a meeting a while back. Uh, they've actually said that there's going to be another summit that will take place sometime after the U.S. midterm elections, which which are in about a week and a half or so. If, if you haven't already done so, please make sure you're registered to vote if you can in your state and do so. That's, again, about a week and a half. But sometime after that midterm election, Trump has said that another summit between him and Kim Jong-un will take place. Now, all of that said, we have not seen a complete de-escalation of the tension there. South Korea has decided that it's going to continue to carry out two military drills that they had planned that that will take place sometime in the next week or so. Uh, It's the Taiguk drill and the Hoguk drill. Uh, I hope I pronounced those right. And so they're going to continue to do that. Um, one, one is like a command post exercise that takes about a week. The other is more of a field maneuver exercise. And they're going to continue to do both of those. And the idea here is they want to continue to maintain some sort of military readiness, just in case, especially in light of the fact that the 
the big annual exercises, the ones that the United States actually joined South Korea in, called the Ulchi Freedom Guardian Exercises, has been delayed. Uh, we decided to do that as a, a show of good faith on our side to North Korea, and so North Korea has responded again with a couple of these kind of small symbolic gestures as well to try to show their good faith. Now, we've also seen though North Korea has not exactly stepped back in other areas. Just recently, they were caught um, using cryptocurrency scams to try to bypass U.S. sanctions and gain funding for their uh, overall regime. They've been doing various cyber attacks on Bitcoin exchanges. Now, I don't pretend to be an expert on Bitcoin like at all, but I, I do know that it's a good way that North Korea has been trying to help financially support its regime. So there were actually two different separate scams that they were tied to just in 2018. Both were essentially designed to con investors and to funnel funds then kind of back into North Korea, which would, of course, then leave the, the, any sort of investors in this cryptocurrency kind of high and dry. And this honestly isn't even the first time North Korea has been caught hacking and doing things. They were previously blamed for a cyber attack on a South Korean Bitcoin uh, last year. There is some thought that they were involved with uh, hacking into the video game company Sony. Uh, we also have believed that a North Korean hacking group that's called APT38 has conducted operations in around 11 or 12 different countries, uh, stealing money from banks, you know, transferring funds from banks around the world, laundering the money to the point of maybe $100 million or so. And so North Korea has been tied to massive global theft on the hacking front. And so while they do seem to be backing off some of the tensions along the, the border with South Korea, they have continued their cyber attacks and cyber spying and hacking around the world. So despite the kind of signs of a, a break in the historically tense relationship between Washington, D.C., Pyongyang, and Seoul, North Korea has been accused, I should say, I guess, of being one of the most dangerous and one of the most effective uh, hacking teams that exist in the world. And it's actually thought, too, that $100 million was on the low end, that they had tried to steal over uh, over $1 billion, but obviously only got away with a fraction of that. And that's over the last several years, too. So this isn't a brand new thing, but it was just recently caught and pointed out, but it had been taking place since at least 2014. Now, I wanted to use all of these updates on North Korea to launch as kind of a springboard into another short episode of Peculiar Politics. If you remember, I did a Peculiar Politics episode maybe a month or so ago where we talked about Liechtenstein and some of the odd military things that have taken place with them over the years. But North Korea is a very unusual country in and of itself, and I thought it would be worth kind of touching on one of the stranger elements of their regime that have just taken place in the last couple of years or so. And that is the idea of the North Korean clocks. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about here, uh, this should be a pretty interesting episode because the North Korean timekeeping system, their clocks, have been off by half an hour from everyone else around them, in particular from South Korea, from Seoul. And this has only been since 2015, and that's because they were using something called Pyongyang time. Now, before I get into what that is and why they did it and why they are a half hour off as opposed to traditional time zones being a full hour, I want to back up just for a minute and talk about time zones and how we got them in the first place because this is actually pretty important. I won't spend too long on this. I know time zones isn't the most popular or interesting topic in the world, but I think it's important to understand where we got them in the first place. So 
prior to the existence of clocks, before they were invented, mostly we marked the time of day using what's called solar time, which essentially you can think of as the time on a sundial. But the problem is that varied for every location. Uh, it was dependent very much on your longitude at the time. And even when you had these kind of mechanical clocks, each city had their own kind of version of local mean solar time is what they called it. And so this meant that times would vary city to city and there was no real standard. Now in 1675, Greenwich Mean Time was established uh, mostly to help uh, mariners determine, long determine longitude at sea. And so they, they used Greenwich Mean Time as a standard reference. But even during this, each city across England where Greenwich is kept a different local time. And so this caused all kinds of problems. And local solar time really became much more inconvenient as things like uh, train systems popped up, rail transport, and telecommunications. And so the use of time zones was invented so that nearby cities could maintain a shared standard for timekeeping. Now, the first real adaptation or adoption of standard time was in 1847 in Great Britain, and it was by railway companies, so trains. And they invented this thing called railway time. And so it was, again, a standard time that was used for trains. And it kind of caught on, and the United States did it. New Zealand adopted a standard time that was used throughout the country in the 1860s. And American railway systems actually started to adopt this around that same time. There was a man by the name of Charles Dowd who wanted one-hour standard time zones for American railroads in the, in the 1860s. And so he proposed you know, four time zones for the United States. And while his system specifically that he wanted was never adopted, a similar system that incorporated Canada into it as well was inaugurated in 1883 in November. And so you had four different time zones. If you look at a map of this, this time zone, they were quite different from what we think of them today. But essentially, these time zones really caught on across the United States. And so within about a year or so, about 85% of all, of all the major cities were using a standard time, with, depending on what time zone they were in. Now, the big exception to this was the city of Detroit. Detroit is kind of about halfway between Eastern time and Central time. And so they actually kept a local time, like local Detroit time, until the 1900s. But that's what happened in the United States. Now, globally... The first idea to conceive of a kind of worldwide system of time zones was an Italian man by the name of uh, Carico Filipanti. Now, he introduced this idea back in the 1850s, and he wanted 24-hour-long time zones. He called them longitudinal days, and that would circle the globe, which, again, I think makes a lot of sense. But his book, real, his book that he wrote about this was something called uh, Miranda, I don't know why he called it Miranda or why it has an exclamation point in the title, but uh, his book really didn't get any sort of attention whatsoever during his lifetime. It was only after his death that anybody started to catch on to it. Now, in the 1870s, there was a man, a Canadian man, uh, by the name of Sanford Fleming, who proposed a very similar system of time zones. Now, his first idea was that kind of global 24-hour clock. And over the next 20 years or so, we saw the world start to adapt to this idea of time zones. Now, this was kind of a, a very tricky time period as you know, states, countries, cities all started to adopt at different times. But by about 1900, almost all time on Earth was in the form of some sort of time zones. Now, even then, 
it took many, many decades before these time zones were all standardized to a central one, which if you are familiar with this, it's the Greenwich Mean Time is what's considered the standard now. And so by 1929 or 1930 or so, most of the major countries had adopted these and most of them were adhering to this standard offset from Greenwich Mean Time as in how many hours ahead or how many hours behind they are from Greenwich. Now today, pretty much all nations use standard time zones for, you know, for secular purposes, but there are some exceptions to this. Um, there's a handful of countries that use half hour deviations from standard time. That would be countries like Iran, Sri Lanka, uh, parts of Australia use half hour deviations. And then there are some places, actually Nepal and a couple provinces, they're like islands in New Zealand actually use quarter hour deviations. And then you have some countries that are pretty large countries like China and India, uh, which use a single time zone for the whole country, even though the extent of their territory far exceeds any sort of longitudinal measurement. You know, they cross multiple time zones, but they use one time that's standard for the whole country. Now, it's in this context that I want to talk about with North Korea, because before modern clocks were introduced to North Korea, they used solar time, like pretty much the rest of the world. They actually used a water clock at night, which allowed them to measure that. I'm not quite entirely sure how that worked at the time, uh, but this is, we're talking you know, back in like the 1400s or so. Now, around the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, the Korean empire existed. And so they adopted a standard time of eight and a half hours ahead of the universal time clock or the Greenwich Mean Time. And then they switched and they used a time zone of nine hours ahead to align with, J with Japanese standard time. However, this is where it gets a little tricky because North Korean government in 2015 under Kim Jong-un decided they wanted to return to that eight and a half hour mark. This is in August of 2015 and they officially called it Pyongyang time. Now, mostly the reason for this is because the government of North Korea decided that they wanted to break from what they called imperialism. And so they, essentially it was kind of a screw you to South Korea saying, we don't want to be on the same time that you are. And so they set their clocks back 30 minutes in 2015, the, the entire country set it back 30 minutes on August 15th, the 70th anniversary of being liberated from Japan. And so Kim Jong-un essentially saw this as a reset back to what the time in, in North Korea was at the time of the Korean Empire before Japanese colonization. So they're doing this as kind of an anti-Japanese thing. They want to celebrate the Korean tradition, you know, where they said that, you know, 5,000 year history of being Korean Empire, the Korean nation, and that the Japanese imperialism, the Japanese occupation essentially wiped that out and they're trying to return to that. Now, this is also on the heels of the idea that North Koreans actually don't operate on the same calendar as the rest of the world either. They have their own calendar. Uh, they don't count from you know, the birth of Christ like most modern nations do. They count from the birth of their founding leader, Kim Il-sung. And so they use the Juche calendar or the Juche calendar, and that is essentially counting from 1912. And so that would make this year... Um, what, what would this be? We're 20, 2018, so we would be the year Juche or Juche 106. And so, in addition to having their own calendar that the rest of the world doesn't follow, they also then, in 2015, started using a different time system, putting Pyongyang half an hour behind both Tokyo and Seoul. 
Now, this did cause some problems. There were issues with inter-Korean exchanges, economic trade, those sorts of things. And there was even some talk at the time that Seoul might follow suit to try to move its time zone back. It actually was set at eight and a half hours for like a seven-year period in the 50s before they decided to realign with Japan to make them a little bit more standardized. And so there have been proposals even in South Korea to, to change this, but South Korea never, never did. And so North Korea was kind of on their own. They were operating on a completely different calendar, completely different time than anyone else around them. And again, so it was kind of a screw you to Japan, screw you to South Korea that they wanted to be different. But what happened is in 2018, uh, back in April, I believe this was shortly after meeting with President Moon, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un announced that his country would realign their clocks with South Korea. And this was, again, seen as a very symbolic act of unification. They were realigning to that nine hour, nine hours ahead of standard time. And they issued a decree about changing this as a way to unify the Koreas, to eliminate differences between the North, the North and the South. And this time change actually went forward back in May. And so... It, as of today, North Korea and South Korea are back on that same time zone that they had been off for almost three years. And again, this is a very, very small symbol, but it is a symbol of kind of peace, goodwill. And on top of some of these other moves that they've had as well, you know, there has been some kind of, I would say, cautious optimism around the world about this. There's a, a fairly famous photo of the North and South Korean clocks in the what's called the Blue House, which is in that JSA on the border between the two countries. And the two clocks are sitting on the wall next to each other where you can see them being half an hour apart. And the, the story goes that Kim Jong-un saw that and was distressed and wanted it to be unified. Now, as I've mentioned on this podcast many, many times, I have a tendency to not trust North Korea. I don't think they've really built up a bank of trust over the years that this is any sort of real meaning behind it. I do think it's an interesting symbolic gesture. I think it's a promising one, especially in conjunction with some of these other things that have happened there recently with returning the remains, uh, the meetings, those sorts of things. And obviously just this week with the disarming of that border area. But I would be very, very cautious about what this might mean going forward. Nothing really has changed. Now, as I mentioned, there are are other places in the world that operate on weird time zones. And I want to just touch on a little bit of this. Uh, there's actually a surprisingly high number of cities in countries in the world that are either 15 minutes off or a full 30 minutes off from what the rest of that region considers normal. Uh, just as one example, Newfoundland, which is a territory in Canada, uses a half hour time zone, which is about two and a half hours behind Greenwich Mean Time. Now, Newfoundland is an island, which makes it a little bit easier for them to, to manage this, but they're kind of an odd one in the world because of that. Uh, there are others as well. The country of Iran, is the entire country of Iran is on a half hour break. Uh, they're th three and a half hours ahead of Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, we have seen the country of Nepal is actually on a 15 minute break. They're 15 minutes ahead of India, ahead of Sri Lanka, but 15 minutes behind countries like Bangladesh, uh, and Kazakhstan and uh, Bhutan, they're a little bit off. Uh, they're one of the only 15-minute ones. There is a, a territory in Australia that's off by 15 minutes as well. But getting back to North Korea, they are really one of the only ones that has continued to change their time zone. As I mentioned, they've changed it a couple times in the past, just recently changing it back in May of this year. But with that, we're going to go ahead and end this episode of 
peculiar politics. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I think it's kind of an unusual history that goes along with North Korea. But there's been some fascinating developments that are taking place there that at least have the potential to lead to real change. As I mentioned, I think cautious optimism is a good phrase that we can use here. I think we need to be very, very cautious when dealing with anything with North Korea. But I think it's worth keeping an eye on going forward. So with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. As always, please find me on Twitter. My username is Justin R underscore Kenny. Find me there. Follow me. We can continue that conversation. You can also find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. I actually have a new fiction novel that will be coming out probably in the next month or so. It's going to be called Splintered State. This is the first time I'm announcing this on the podcast. That it was officially decided. I'm actually working on book cover designs right now. They should be decided within a week or so. And then the release of the book should come out probably sometime in November if all goes well. But I'll keep you guys updated on that. In the meantime, check out my previous book, Precipice. It's on Amazon, also under J. Robert Kinney. And I'll let you know when Splintered State is ready to come out as well. So you can find that too. If you are at all interested in helping support me, support this podcast, or advertising on the podcast, please check out my Patreon account or contact me directly, and I would be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. But until next week, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I'm out in three, two, one. 